Good morning, everyone. So glad you're here today, and this is probably one of my favorite Sundays. I love waving those palms and seeing everyone be involved with it. And, I, you know, I was studying some of the topography of the area, and it's just amazing to me how much we miss because sometimes we just can't see everything that there is to see. For example, did you guys see the comet that was in the sky a few weeks ago? It was just off the Big Dipper. I heard a radio personality talking about, you know, if you didn't have the distraction, the white lights of the city, you could look up towards the Big Dipper from our perspective and you would be able to see it with your naked eye. And if you had a telescope or even binoculars, you'd surely be able to see it. No one, no one. That's right. So it was a really cool sight. I looked up images of it, but they were just little tiny yellow dots. So I didn't share those pictures with you. But the human eye can see much more than we actually comprehend. In fact, all the stars are still out if we went outside and looked. All the stars that we saw last night, if you saw the stars last night, are still out there today. We just don't see them because of the interference and the distance. See, we think that sometimes when we look up and because we can't see something, it's not there. When actually it is there, but we're not seeing it. We're not seeing it because of the distance. We're not seeing it because of the interference, but it's really hidden there in plain sight. And I became acutely aware of this when a friend of mine asked me if I would guide her through the lifetime triathlon. She's visually impaired, and so she needed me to swim, bike, and run next to her as she competed in this event. Now, in addition to actually doing the swimming, the biking, and the running, you have to practice those transitions, you know, from the swim to the bike to the run. And so we were out at Lake Calhoun, and we were coming off the beach and, or coming off of the water, and we were about to go from where the swimming area ended to where the, the bikes were stored over in the pavement. And so I grab her hand and we start running through the sand. And I'm like, yeah, this is no problem. And all of a sudden we get to the grass and she trips and nearly falls over. I grab her arm and I'm like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And I could just see frustration all over her face. And I'm like, what did I do wrong? And she goes, Rob, I can't see. <laughs> well, yeah. No, I can't see. I assume that when we leave the water, we're going to be running through soft sand. But I have no idea when soft sand becomes firm soil or firm grass and then solid pavement. You have to tell me about those changes. I can't anticipate them. And in that moment, all of a sudden, I could see things that I'd never, ever paid attention to before. The same is true for us spiritually. There are things in this world that just because we can't see doesn't mean they're there. They're hidden. They're, they're eternal. They're spiritual. But they're there. And if we can use our faith almost like a telescope towards the heavens, we would see things that we'd never seen before. We would not just be able to see, but we would be able to ask. See, here's the whole idea of what I, what I studied in the scripture and what I think the Lord has for us today is how we see Jesus determines what we'll ask him for or what we think he can do. How we see Jesus will determine what we think he can do. So 
What struck me as we, as the, in the scripture you heard during the palm reading, was the variety of crowds and their responses to Jesus. So we have this first crowd that is coming from Galilee, or from the area of Galilee. The, the picture shows us Jericho, but really Jericho is the last major city as people travel from this northern region of Galilee down to the southern region of Jerusalem. And so the people, the crowd that's in Jericho, may have been with Jesus, they might have been a crowd following Jesus, or they just might have been a crowd that was coming from Galilee to Jerusalem because every Jew was supposed to travel to Jerusalem for the Passover celebration, which is just days away. We don't actually know if they're with Jesus or they're not with Jesus, but we know their safety in numbers. Here's, here's a look at not just, oh, that doesn't come out very well, but from the Sea of Galilee up to the Dead Sea. And if you go to the next picture, this is actually the road that goes from Jericho up to Jerusalem. It's a desert wilderness. It goes from Jericho's 800, more than 800 feet below sea level, and Jerusalem is more than 2,500 feet above sea level. So there's a 3,000 vertical climb in addition to the 15 mile trek that's going to take someone eight to 10 hours. There are bandits along the way. It's where the story of the Good Samaritan takes place. And so there are safety in numbers. So as the people leave, knowing that they have this 8 to 10 hour hike, they're not really interested in stopping along the way. They want to get to the next destination. And this first crowd is one that is walking with Jesus, but not really willing to stop for someone who can't see him. Think about it. It says in the scripture that we read that as Jesus and his disciples were leaving Jericho, going through this mountainous region, a large crowd is following him, and two blind men were sitting by the road, and when they heard that Jesus was going by, they shouted, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. Now, this would mean a lot to the Jewish people. It might not mean as much to us now, but you're the Savior. You're the one who can do something about where I'm at. Have mercy on me. And what does your Bible say they said next? You can participate. It's okay. Shout it out. Rebuke them. When is the last time you were rebuked? I know, it's such a positive thing to think about, isn't it? I know for me, it was when I said something where I really didn't have all the information, but I kind of spoke it confidently as if maybe I was right. And I was very much put in my place. See, I think when you're rebuked, you're not just told to be quiet or to stop talking. But I think when you're rebuked, what you're being told is whatever you are saying, it's wrong. You should stop. Sometimes at a wedding, pastors will say, if anyone sees a reason why this couple shouldn't be married, speak now or forever hold your peace. Rebuking in a polite way is hold your peace. But rebuking in a rude way would be, shut up. I'm going on a walk with Jesus, and you're interrupting it. <laughs> I mean, that's my translation. <laughs> and instead, these blind guys don't stop, which I think is really helpful. But what it says to me about the first crowd 
is the first crowd is following Jesus, but they just don't want to stop for anyone that can't see him. The first crowd, that's how they respond. They, they, they're following Jesus. They just don't want to stop for anyone who can't see him. I think this is often how the organized church has been throughout history. Now, it's not all the time, but there are people who really, really want to know Jesus. But they're not always interested in stopping for those on the side of the road, for those that are begging, for those that are less fortunate, for those that are blind, for those who can't see. See, sometimes blindness has nothing to do with our physical, natural eyesight. And it has everything to do with what we're able to perceive. And where the, scripture, where the Holy Spirit just really struck me this week in one of these readings was how often I miss Jesus in the crowd. How often do you miss Jesus in the crowd? Coworker, friend in need, Literally someone on the side of the road? Oh, God bless them. I don't have time to stop. Be quiet. I'm on a nice little walk with Jesus. We just miss where he's at. My church planting director gave us a picture of Jesus. I think I'm going to share it next week. It is a fascinating reconstruction from someone who has studied archaeology and witness like sketching from police work and they have reconstructed what Jesus most likely looked like according to that time and era. Uh, First of all, he doesn't have blue eyes. But second of all, I can see how people would never have mistaken him and being able to pick him out of a crowd. Scripture tells us that, that he was nothing remarkable to look at. Very ordinary, someone would easily pass him by. And again, I think... If Jesus were to be walking by today, it would be easy for us to miss. This crowd isn't against Jesus in any way, shape, or form. They just don't want to stop for those that we would call the least of these. I had a a pastor friend of mine tell us about this this thing that used to be, you've heard of it before, it's not unique to pastors, take your kid to work day. Anybody ever heard of take your kid to work day? I used to ask my dad if I could do the take your kid to work day on the times that he had it because he was a banker. I thought it would be kind of fun. And he's like, oh, you'd be really bored. Go with your mom. Well, she was a teacher. So I just ended up back at school. But, <laughs> but this, this pastor friend of mine said, isn't it great that every day can be a take your kid to work day for us? And I didn't really get it. And he's like, well, your heavenly father brings you to work every day. And in that moment, I just, it totally changed my perspective on the whole day. In fact, I realized that there are too many days that go by where I forget that Jesus is right there with me. That I get to take my Heavenly Father to work every day with me. And it really isn't unique to ministry. You and I can take our Heavenly Father to wherever we're going to go, whether it's work or school or home. But we miss him walking by in the crowd. Sometimes it's not the historic church. Sometimes the historic church actually gets it really right. They spend time and money focused on those that are less fortunate than them. They put resources towards that. They make sure that they have ministries towards that. Sometimes it's actually just individuals 
that make up this first crowd. Individuals that really aren't interested in hearing the cries of people that can't see him. See, when I'm walking with Jesus and someone shouts that they can't see Jesus and they need help to see Jesus, then I'm often pretty responsive in pausing and saying, how can I help you? When someone is just crying out like these two, have mercy on me. I don't know if they're asking for my help. And the Lord convicted me that I'm not very good at stopping. Like, are you just crying out or do you actually need my help? And God convicted me of that. Do you miss Jesus going by in the crowd? Do you miss when he's on the side of the road asking for help through someone else? I do. And if you've been someone who's been saying, have mercy on me, why don't my friends get this? I'm crying out to them, cry louder, more specifically. In fact, maybe you should say it like this. Maybe you should say, I can't see Jesus in the situation I'm in, and I really want to. Can you help me? I would be responsive to that. I think I'd be responsive to that. I'm in a situation where I can't see Jesus and I want to. Can you help me? I just thank God that these blind guys didn't actually stop shouting. That's the first crowd. The second crowd is this crowd that the disciples enter into in Matthew 21. As they approached Jerusalem, they came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives. Now, Bethphage and Bethany are two villages that are close together, very close to Jerusalem, one or two miles away. So Jericho is the last major city on the way. They're going through those rocky canyons and mountains that I just described. But they get up to this place called the Mount of Olives, which is actually the highest elevation point in the area. So it's 200 feet vertically, if that matters to you. But my point is, when you're on the Mount of Olives, you can look down on the temple. Because there's this big valley, you go back up to the city of Jerusalem, and the Temple Mount, even today, 2,000 years later, is very obvious to see. The Jerusalem Temple's not there from the Jews, but it's very obvious to see. And from this vantage point, Jesus would have been able to hop up on this donkey And as he rode down this mountain, he would be able to look down on the city, on this sanctuary that was built so that people could know him and worship him. And remember, later he weeps for it. But the disciples in this moment, you know what I'm struck by? I'm struck by the fact that the disciples are asked to steal, I mean, borrow a donkey from someone, and and they do it. And they don't question him ever in this moment. The disciples are always questioning Jesus. But in this moment, they just answer without hesitation and without question. That is a crowd I want to be a part of. And this crowd joins them at Bethphage and comes down the mountain with them. And they have these palm branches and they have their coats down. And this is the only time in scripture that Jesus actually ever rides a donkey. I think it's the only time he ever rides anything. But there must be some significance to it. And the writer clearly points it out. He says, this took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. It's the prophet Zechariah. Say to your daughter Zion, see your king comes to you. Gentle and riding on a donkey and on a colt, a foal of a donkey. So this Zechariah passage might, if you turn to it in Zechariah 9.9, it might actually say that, that he's victorious. 
that he's this righteous conqueror, and it sends the wrong message. What Zechariah is also saying is that this this is the long-awaited Messiah, but he is not coming on some white stallion as a conquering king. He hasn't been victorious. He's coming on a donkey that signifies humility and gentleness, but it also uses this word righteous and saved, giving us this picture that the king that Zechariah is talking about is going to be one accused and attacked by people, but called right and saved by God. Now that sounds a lot like Jesus. See, this second crowd is a crowd of people who really might want to follow Jesus, but they really want freedom from oppression. They might follow Jesus, they might want Jesus, but they really want freedom from oppressors. People that might make up this crowd are people who think that organized religion is evil. They're really guarded from it. They're cautious of it because of the mixed messages I think they get from crowd one. It's like, yeah, we love Jesus. Sorry, we can't stop. But the crowds, this crowd can also be individuals that are so desperate for freedom that they'll get it in any way, shape, or form. There are people like Peter, who when Jesus, a few nights from this moment, four days later, is in a, in a garden praying, and a crowd comes, and they have clubs and sticks and swords, and they come to arrest Jesus. And Peter sees what's happening here, and in his anger, grabs a sword and cuts the guy's ear off. He's so desperate for freedom from oppression that he'll do anything to have freedom. That's what this second crowd is about. This second crowd is actually pretty fickle. See, true freedom never comes through aggression. And I think as people who live in America, I think that's kind of hard for us. But true freedom never comes through aggression. True freedom comes through surrender and sacrifice. That's what Jesus is going to do five days from now. And that's why the crowd turns on him. See, the crowd sees the connection between what the prophet predicted hundreds of years before it and what is actually happening in that mountain. As they're coming down the mountain and they see the coats going down and the leaves going down, they're like, oh, this is it. Jesus is declaring himself as the messianic king. He's the one that's going to come. He's the one that's going to save us. And they assume that that saving means that he is going to beat Rome kick them out, set up his kingdom, and now they can have a real party, a real place to live, and they can have freedom from all those other people, except that so often when we want freedom from all those other people, what we're really saying is we want freedom for ourselves. We want to be free of all the rules. If you don't believe me, just spend a little time on a college campus with a bunch of freshmen. If you find yourself in this crowd, be cautious. Be cautious of where you stand with Jesus. These are the crowds that are like, yay, Jesus, kill him five days later. When they don't see the Messiah that they want, 
they're done with them. And it really it boils down to, if you think you're in this crowd, you have to ask yourself, do I want freedom from Jesus? Do I want freedom from oppression? Or do I want freedom for Jesus so I can follow him? So that's the second crowd. The second crowd is following Jesus down the Mount of Olives, through this valley, and up to Jerusalem. As they go up the city hill to Jerusalem, there's a third crowd that spills out from the city. This third crowd is coming out because they hear the commotion and they wonder what is going on. And in Matthew 21, 10 and 11, it says that this crowd comes out when they heard, or when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred. That's such a nice way to say that. And they asked, who is this? They were actually agitated. They had a gut-wrenching pain in the inside of them. And the crowd says, this is Jesus. This is Jesus. This is Jesus. The prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Hmm. That's not quite how they said it as they were coming down the mountain. When they were coming down the mountain, they were saying, Hosanna! Which actually we take as praise, but in the Aramaic, it means Yasha, it means the one who saves. They were shouting, praise God, hip hip hooray is what we might say, but this God is going to save us. This is the king of kings and he has come and we are happy about it. But now when the crowd says, who is this? They just say, oh, he's a prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Let's just make him a little bit tamer, a little bit nicer. If you're in a conversation with a friend um, or an acquaintance who is asking you about Jesus and you're a little scared of what to say to them, you might say, oh, he's an amazing teacher, a very ethical person. I model my life after him. And none of that would be quite wrong, but it's definitely not the whole story. And he wouldn't be that amazing of a teacher if you're really saying, he tells all these great moral lessons, but he claimed to be God, and so we, we're just going to put that part to the side here. Yeah, a prophet does bring truth, but that's not all he is. But if you're in this third crowd, then you're a person who is suspicious of Jesus. And very content with the status quo. Jerusalem was very much like the capital in the Hunger Games. This was the place where God was going to dwell with the people. That the permanent structure had been set up. That everything happens in Jerusalem. That the three major festivals of the, of the Jewish faith happen in Jerusalem. If you lived in Jerusalem, then you were where it was at. If you were in the religious elite, then you had the power there. And if you have power, sometimes it's hard to give it away. If you're in this crowd, you like the way of life that you have. And you're suspicious of anyone who is going to change it. Maybe that's why they said, he's the prophet. He's the one from Galilee, from Nazareth in Galilee. He's not going to change your way of life. He's just going to bring truth and revelation to you. Well, that truth and revelation actually is going to flip your life upside down. He's going to lovingly rustle you to the ground 
or touch your hip, as one story in the Old Testament says, until you see your new identity that is actually better than you can understand. It just means that the way you've been doing it is not going to be the way that it's going to be anymore. This third crowd has a hard time listening to the evidence and the testimony. They are very skeptical of what Jesus proves himself with. They don't like to listen to the facts. They often refuse to see what you or someone else might put in front of them. See, sometimes when we think we can question and investigate for ourselves, we think that's freedom. I was reading that this generation that is growing up, that they're now calling the iGen, people like 20, 25, and younger, they haven't decided when it's going to end yet. This is the first generation that doesn't need adults for information. Think about that, what that's doing to teaching. Although teachers have responded by teaching their kids how to question Questioning is a good thing. It's a form of learning. It's what Jesus and the people that were rabbis at the time taught the people to do, to question. Except sometimes when you question everything, you think that you are the one who can interpret if it's right. And this generation doesn't need adults for information, but they do need adults for interpretation. And now I need adults to help me to make sure my interpretation is right. And I think we, no matter what our age, need people to help us with interpretation. See, when we're in this crowd and we're suspicious and skeptical, it's okay to be inquisitive, but if we take that to be our freedom, then what we're saying is we get to decide what is right and what is wrong, what is truth and what is not truth. And these are the three crowds that show up on Palm Sunday. One that's walking with Jesus and refuses to see the person who can't see him. One that might be with Jesus but really, really wants their freedom from oppression. And one that is not with Jesus. They are actually just skeptical of whatever he might change in their life. And which crowd do you fall into? Which crowd do you sometimes put yourself in? Because how you see Jesus will determine what you believe he can do. The crowds all think that they can see Jesus. They're all convinced. They, he's right there in front of their eyes. They think they can see him. So praise God that this writer includes these two blind guys. Because really, what does it mean if you're blind? I'm not, I'm not asking for a mysterious answer here. What does it mean if you're blind? You can't see. So what can't they see? They can't see the physical environment, which when you think about it, they didn't see that Jesus was going by and they didn't actually hear Jesus going by. They weren't distracted by the crowds, but they heard that Jesus was going by. And when they heard that Jesus was going by, they shouted. And when they were told to stop, they just shouted all the longer. They could see clearer than anyone else could see. Lord Jesus, son of David, you're the king of kings. You're the descendant of the king David. You're the one who came from Abraham. You're the Messiah. You're the one that was promised to free the whole world, to fix this problem that we have. I just don't have a little blindness. No, the whole world is going to hell. The whole world is separated from God. And I hear that you're the one 
who's going to fix everything. That's, I want that kind of mercy. Show that kind of kindness to me. The two blind people are the ones who can see everything. Those are the people that we are invited to be like. That takes a little humility. That takes a little boldness because you've got to shout over a crowd that's just saying, you're not doing it right. Be quiet. We're just supposed to go along on our walk with Jesus. We're supposed to have our Bible study and we're supposed to come to church and we're supposed to maybe give some money or volunteer sometimes. No, this is the Jesus that is the son of David, the king of the world, the one who came from Abraham to restore the whole world. This is the person that you want to change your whole life and it will be changed and it will be messy, but it will be life, not death. These are the ones who can see. Where do you need to ask for mercy? in your life. Worship team's going to come up, because otherwise I could go for another hour. I mean, if anybody started doing some amens, we might be here till at least past noon. But where do you need mercy? Because if you can see Jesus, he's going to ask you what you want him to do for you. That's what he does with the blind guys. What do you want me to do? What do you want me to do for you? I think some of us don't know how to answer that question. We're afraid to answer that question. God said to me, I'm just too polite. Oh, Jesus, I want you to help other people. No, what do you want me to do for you? Oh, well, I don't know. I really like to ask you something impossible, but that might be that might be greedy. That might be selfish. Or that might mean that I have to trust that Jesus actually can do the impossible. That's what God was doing to my heart this week. Lord, Jesus, have mercy on me. It's a need. It's a request. But it is a glorious glorious prayer. And I encourage you to pray it this week and to ask God for what you need, what you believe he can do for you. Because how you see him will determine what you believe he can do. And we want to ask for God to do the impossible in our lives, not to make us great, but to make us whole, to free us from our blindness. This week, I pray that you could ask that, that we could be people who could see the things that we can't see, the things that we've refused to see, the people we've refused to stop for, that we'd be people humble, confident, and courageous enough to say, Jesus, have mercy on me. That's our prayer, God. No matter how long we've investigated you, Jesus, you've held up to 2,000 years of scrutiny. The more I read this book and the more I study the land and the history, the more I say this actually happened and it's changed 
the world. B.C. and A.D. are not just designations on a calendar. They are literally divisions in history. And we give our lives to Jesus. We ask for your mercy because we need it, because we are not whole without it. We run after the wrong things. We ignore things that you wouldn't ignore. We'd be content with you just bringing us a little truth and us keeping our way of life. We are not whole. We need you. Pray that we'd be able to bring those things, those barriers, those blinders that that keep us from seeing to you. And that we'd ask for you to heal us. And we'd believe that you can heal us, God. Let us be people who can respond in faith. Maybe for the first time, Lord, I believe. I want to see. I want to see. I want to see. Amen.